If you have a Bible with you this morning, I want you to open up to the book of Acts. We've been in Acts, uh, working through this book, verse by verse. This morning, we're going to do an overview of Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. I've entitled the message this morning, if you're taking notes, as Defending the Faith. Defending the Faith. Acts chapter 7. I will not read uh, the whole chapter this morning, but we're going to look at bits and pieces of it as we do a little bit of an overview of this incredible sermon, this sermon of Stephen, and then we'll be diving into it as a series over the coming weeks. And so I hope that we'll be encouraged this morning as we kind of whet our appetite for some of the macro themes, some of the big picture things that we'll see here about how Stephen was defending the faith here in Acts 7. So I'm going to pray and then we'll jump into our time together. So dear God, we just want to thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence and to sing songs of joy. Thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood to die uh, when you died on the cross for our sins. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for enlightening us, opening up our minds that we may see and understand the depths and the riches of the beauty of your word. And I pray as we look at Stephen this morning and as we learn a little bit more about this important sermon, that it would cause us to stop and to think and to, to learn and to grow deeper and to appreciate the beauty and the wisdom of God throughout all of redemptive history. So bless this time together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're talking about again this morning, defending the faith. And the most commonly used verse related to Christians defending their faith has to be probably 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that many of you know that says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and with respect. You can't hardly talk about defending the faith without maybe thinking about that verse. And the only way to really make a defense effectively is to know the reasons why you believe in the first place. There needs to be a deep conviction and a mature faith in order to withstand the onslaught of godly wisdom or I should say the onslaught of worldly wisdom, right? We need godly wisdom to be able to defend the worldly wisdom. And the practice of defending the faith is called apologetics. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which means making a defense. In that verse I quoted, verse um, Peter 3.15, simply to defend, being prepared to make a defense. And so we know that through careful study, prayer and devotion to God's word, we will be prepared to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. When Paul instructed Titus to obtain elders in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, he said, he must hold firm in the trustworthy word as taught so that he may able he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we know from 1 Timothy 3.2 that an elder is to be able to teach. In Titus 1.9 that I just read, he must give instruction in sound doctrine and also be able to rebuke those who contradict it. So part of being an elder is not only preaching the word and teaching the people, but also to defend the truth, and to expose error, and to make sure that they're cutting it straight. And sadly, many elders or leaders in churches today simply are not able to do that. 
And because many church leaders and church elders, even in some places, are unable to do that, many so-called Christians have little to no understanding of why and what they believe in the first place. And because so many churches today are about upbeat talks, feel-good encouragement, and giving people a good time where they enjoy themselves, they are lacking a solid foundation in their faith. Ephesians 4.14 says that these people are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. In many ways, apologetics is both defending the faith against attacks, but it's also about presenting truth claims of the Bible to unbelievers. The Apostle Paul was gifted in both preaching the gospel and defending the truth of Scripture. In Acts 17, 2 through 3, it describes how Paul, the apologist, was at work in Athens attacking the very heart of Greek culture. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Like Paul, all of us as believers are to, as Jude verse 3 says, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Well, there was a great apologist of the faith before Paul, and we're learning about the knowledge and the gifts as a preacher of this man this morning, and of course, we're talking about Stephen. Unable to beat Stephen in open debate, his opponents used an ad hominem argument of attacking Stephen's character. They made up false charges of blasphemy against him. They seized him and brought him before the Sanhedrin for trial. And as we will see, Stephen masterfully based his defense on the Old Testament scriptures. Stephen was stronger in the word than Arnold Schwarzenegger ever was with weights. Stephen had more stamina in defending the faith than Mike Tyson had in the ring. Stephen was more articulate in this defense of the faith than leading apologist James White has ever been in one of his modern day debates. Stephen knew, and he believed the truth with all of his heart. He seems to have known large portions of the Old Testament by memory. He showed his commitment to God's word with unflinching courage. So powerful was his defense of the faith, uh, the defense of the faith that his accusers were all dumbstruck until he finished. And then with unrelenting rage, they stoned him to death. Stephen's sermon was designed to convict his hearers for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout his message, that indictment slowly builds, picking up steam until it reaches a devastating climax. He shows that the Jews, by rejecting the Messiah, that they were following in the footsteps of their apostate fathers who rejected Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. They even rejected God himself. Stephen was not the blasphemer. They were. And finally, Stephen sought to present to them the only one who could ever forgive them of their sins, the only one who could ever save their souls, the only one who could cleanse their hearts and wash away their iniquity and make them new. There is only one who is worthy. 
There is only one who is without sin. There is only one who can save us today and cause us to be born again, and that is Jesus. And this morning, all I want to do again is give you an overview of Stephen's sermon. There are three sermons which you can never forget from the book of Acts. There was the first sermon that we heard in Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. There is this sermon here in Acts chapter 7 that Stephen delivered in the heart of Jerusalem. And then there's the sermon I already alluded to of Paul there in Mars Hill in Acts 17. So you have Peter, you have Stephen, and you have Paul. Three incredible sermons to three different audiences, stressing three particular arguments. And so this morning we have the opportunity to look at that middle sermon, Acts chapter 7, Stephen's sermon. And the outline that we're using this morning, I've kind of adapted from the Bible knowledge commentary. And I want you to know that this morning, we're just going to look at three big ideas that Stephen gave in this sermon. And these three ideas are like cords through the fabric of what he's trying to say throughout an entire chapter. Those three fabrics, or that the three cords in the fabric, rather, I want to talk to you about is number one, there is progress and change in God's program. Number two, the blessings of God are not limited to the land of Israel. And number three, Israel always evidenced a pattern of opposition to God. Israel always evidenced a pattern of opposition to God. So we'll look at number one. First of all, number one, there is progress and change in God's program. If you're taking notes this morning, the promise to Abraham in verses two through eight. Now look at verse one with me, if you will. And the high priest said, are these things so? And if you'll remember from our time at the end of Acts chapter 6, there were charges of blasphemy that were brought against Stephen. And they had accused Stephen of, in verse 11, of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Well, that's a pretty big statement to say that basically Stephen, who is a Hebrew, somehow he had a Greek name, but he's a Hebrew, uh, a Jew by, by nature, uh, that he somehow is saying blasphemous things about God and about Moses. They also set up false witnesses who said in verse 13, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and against the law. So Stephen now needed to respond to the high priest, because the priest is asking, are these things so? And this high priest was most likely, I mentioned to you last week, Caiaphas, who was also the high priest who presided over the trials of our Lord. And Stephen was not necessarily trying to recite history, but rather to establish that he is not guilty of blaspheming God, Moses, the law, or the temple, and so here in Acts 7, Stephen gives us the longest sermon of those three that I mentioned. And Stephen did such a good job with his Christ-centered, Christ-exalting sermon that it got him killed. Now think about this also for a moment. Stephen's sermon was in a response to a question that was asked by an accusatory high priest who was at least partially responsible for killing Jesus. This was not some sermon where Stephen was going to stand behind the pulpit after some inspiring, worshipful music like what we hear here at Placerita every single Sunday. Uh, Stephen did not get up to, to in front of a, of a loving and an eager congregation. Who were, who were ready to receive the word. Stephen did not get to preach to an audience who was pretty much in full support of everything that he was going to say. 
He was in a very hostile environment. He was in a place where people were pitted against him, accusing him of false thing. And in this place, he had to somehow preach the truth in a way that would show that he was not denying God's ways, defying Moses' teaching, or debasing the law in the temple. Pretty tall order. And I wonder how you or I might have responded if we were in a similar situation. And I love Stephen's response. Stephen knows his mission and he knows his Bible. And he does not try to weasel out of this difficult situation. He decided to answer the question with a careful, accurate, and thoughtful retelling of Israel's history. And his sermon climaxes with the person and the work of Christ. And everything about his approach demonstrates his understanding that he is to be a witness for Christ and not a slick lawyer trying to excuse this behavior. And believe it or not, some critical scholars claim that his sermon had no real purpose. A few go so far as to suggest that Stephen got stoned to death because his sermon was so bad and so boring. But this kind of literal criticism misses the brilliance and the splendor of Stephen's approach. Here's his overall point. I am not the one demeaning God, Moses, the law, or the temple, but you are. Of course, he doesn't lead with that statement. He gets there in time as he first retells the biblical history. He then tells the religious leaders, he tells the religious leaders that they were actually demeaning God and his word because they have misunderstood the Old Testament teaching. Furthermore, they have rejected the righteous one to whom the temple actually points. And he adds that such a rejection of the Savior is what one would expect of Israel's leaders because of their past. The nation had repeatedly rejected God's appointed prophets and teachers. And in his sermon, Stephen actually accuses the accusers and he puts them on trial. He tells them, in effect, you don't really understand the scripture. Certainly, they know some facts about it, he admits, but they don't really grasp the force of its message. Jesus often corrected the religious leader's interpretation of the Old Testament. Such is true in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, when Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So he said, hey guys, you study the scriptures and you think you're going to find eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. And if you reject me, then you're actually rejecting a proper interpretation of the scripture. Jesus adds to that in John 5, 46, if you believe Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. So they accused Jesus, and now they're accusing Stephen of not believing in Moses, of blaspheming against Moses, where Jesus had said earlier, if you did believe in Moses, you would believe in me. And this is the, basically the same thing that Stephen is trying to prove, prove in his sermon, and his approach involves telling some micro stories in view of the macro story of the Bible, some small stories that point to the big story. And that's good preaching. The Bible includes many narratives, but its main plot is about God's salvation made available through Christ. This is the theme of redemption that we see throughout the Bible. And so back to these three chords that were woven through the fabric of Stephen's sermon. Number one, the progress and the change of God's program. 
And when I say that about the progress and change of God's program, when I say God's program, I'm talking about God's plan. I'm talking about his redemption. I'm talking about his orchestration of all human events and history to bring about his purposes. And then we talk about the progress and change that God made in that plan throughout redemptive history. I'm talking about the fact that God was creative and innovative in his interactions with his people, particularly the chosen people of Israel. And Stephen develops this thought by using five points or five examples. First, Stephen wants to point to Abraham. I told you already that was your first blank. He's going to give five different examples here of how God gave progressive change in his program. The first he wants to point to is Abraham. Let's read now verses seven, excuse me, chapter seven, verses two through verse eight. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And his father died. God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke this spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to other to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years but i will judge the nation that they serve said god and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place and he gave them the covenant of circumcision and so abraham became the father of isaac and he circumcised him on the 8th day and isaac became the father of jacob and jacob of the 12 patriarchs So here we see how God sovereignly called Abraham, who was known as the father of the Jews. And it was the God of glory who called Abraham from Mesopotamia to the land of promise. It was by faith that Abraham was to make his journey as he were to also become the father of Isaac, who would be the father of Jacob, who became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Abraham was to be given the covenant of circumcision and then to pass that on to his children and to his children's children to mark them as God's chosen people. Circumcision was the mark of the Abrahamic covenant, which was to give Abraham's descendants land, seed, and blessing. So as we look at the progress and the change of God's program, first we have seen the promise made to Abraham. Now, second, in the sermon, as we continue our journey, we talk about the journey. Stephen talks about the journey of Joseph, the journey of Joseph in verses 9 through 16. So he talks about Abraham. Now we see the progress of Old Testament history. Verse 9 says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers in their first visit. And on the second visit... Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, 
he and his fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought, had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. All right, so we're reading a little bit more. I don't know about you, but I appreciate Stephen just giving us an overview. I remember as a kid reading through Stephen's sermon, I'm like, oh, good, I'm kind of seeing the connection. I remember the story about Abraham. I remember the story about Joseph. I'm starting to see it all now in one big picture. And this move of the Hebrews from Israel to Egypt was part of God's sovereign plan. We read that in verse 6 and verse 7. It was a, a radical change from what one might have expected so early in the history of Israel. I mean, Abraham had only been in Israel for a, a generation or so, and then his grandsons are now needing to relocate to Egypt. The famine uh, that, that came was obviously ordained by God, which dictated this relocation, and yet we know that God was orchestrating these events. And not only um, that, but even the brother's son, Against Joseph, by selling him into slavery, God was working out his perfect plan. Genesis 50:20 says, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. So his brothers were still guilty for sinning against Joseph by selling him into slavery, and yet somehow that was all part of God's plan. He orchestrated and was working through it, and so we're starting to see the plan of God show up with some unexpected things. You have Abraham coming from outside of Israel to the land of Palestine. All of a sudden, there's a famine. He has to go now. His, his descendants now have to go up uh, to Egypt. You have his brothers that sinned against Joseph. And then as we continue to see progress and change in God's plan, the next person that he talks about is Moses. Moses. Let's look at the deliverance of Moses. And we won't read all of these verses. 17 through 43 takes up the big bulk of his sermon here. And we won't read that at this point. But it does discuss how Moses, as a Hebrew gave, uh, grew up in Pharaoh's house. And then at the age 40, Moses had to flee and become an exile in the land of Midian. And when Moses saw the burning bush, God called him to be his appointed deliverer and to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And while they were in the wilderness, verse 39, so if you skip down to chapter 7, verse 39 says, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. And so un unfortunately, the Israelites also worshipped the golden calf. Now after this section, Stephen discusses, D in your outline, the building of the tabernacle. The building of the tabernacle, verses 40 through 46, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they disposed of the nations that God drove out before our fathers, so that so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God, for the God of Jacob. So we know a little bit about the tabernacle, constructing the tabernacle so that it was portable, implied that it was meant to be temporary. It was called the tabernacle of the testimony because it testified to God's presence among the children of Israel. And this tabernacle was brought through the wilderness and into the promised land by Joshua. And eventually, under the leadership of David, the tabernacle was brought into the holy city of Jerusalem. And then you have E in your outline, the construction of the temple, which had a little bit more of a permanent um, nature to it, though it's not eternal. The construction of the temple, verses 47 through verse 50. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. 
Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my home, or is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is this place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so here we learn that even the temple was to be a symbol of God's presence and not his eternal home. In God's program with the nation of Israel, from Abraham to Solomon, there was innovation and change. So Stephen's point is clear. If God changed so many things in Israel's history, who is to say that the law and the temple were ever meant to be permanent? These were all to be, as Hebrews 8, 5 through 6 says, they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much, that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Here's what we're learning. These things in the Old Testament were not meant to be permanent, but rather they were to point all of them, every story of Abraham, of Joseph, of Moses, of the tabernacle, of the temple, it was all to create a greater interest and hunger for the Messiah. And what was happening was the Jews were so settled on an Old Testament understanding of those patriarchs and an Old Testament understanding of the tabernacle, of the temple, that they were not willing to budge into God's continued revelation of the new covenant. They wanted to stay under the old covenant forever. This, my friends, is a problem. They were steeped in tradition. They were caught up in ritual. They were proud about their heritage in such a way that they didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say, and they didn't want to hear what Stephen had to say. And if we're not careful, we can fall into a similar camp. You can fall into the same mindset of, you already know what you know about the Bible, Therefore, you don't need to study for new and deeper understanding because you already know it all. And you can get so stuck in the mud as a Christian. Now, please be careful to what I'm saying. I'm not saying that today, that today that God continues to progress in new and innovative ways. So somehow we need to sit around and reimagine how to do church. Or we need to sit around and think about how can we better effectively communicate the gospel. Or we need to come up with some horse and pony show in order to get people to come and listen because they think that we're so boring, they're going to stone us to death. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying if, make sure that you really understand the Bible in its context. Because if you do, you'll begin to see the beauty unravel and unfold divinely by the Holy Spirit as you study God's word to see connections in such a beautiful way that you would never reject Christ, that you would never reject the Messiah because you see him in all of his glory and that you're drawn to him. And what's happening is so many times today people want to, want to reinvent things because they, they, they say, well, God, you know, the point I'm trying to make is there was progress, therefore the Jews needed to see the progress of Jesus. Today, when the Bible ended in 95 AD by the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, there is no more revelation. So the progress, in a sense, stopped with the sufficiency of Scripture, and yet there's ongoing and deeper understanding for us as we dive back into God's Word and continue to study and understand it in a greater way. 
But it was the unbelieving Jews here back in Acts 7 who were opposing Stephen. And instead they had actually added to God's word, they added to the Old Testament, their own rules and their own regulations and their own man-made laws. And they were so fixated again on the old covenant that they wanted to keep it as a permanent covenant. They had disregarded the prophecies of the Old Testament that pointed to the New Testament. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah 31, 31. It's like they didn't even understand the progress that they needed to make. And this is a key prophecy given to Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet, about the new covenant. And here's what God revealed to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. He said, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So we say, hey, I got something new for you guys. It's not going to be like the Mosaic covenant, which primarily fixated on ceremonial law, civil law, dietary law. I've got a new covenant that I'm going to give, and it's going to have something to do with your heart It's going to have something to do, it's going to go beyond what Moses did in the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, verse 33, for this is the covenant, and he's talking about the new covenant now, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So Jesus is now teaching us about the fulfillment of the new covenant. Stephen's continuing teaching about the fulfillment of the new covenant, and yet they would not listen. We also read a little bit about the new covenant, similar terminology in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Again, what we're seeing here is that there is progress and change in God's program. Israel didn't get that, and Stephen's trying to share that by giving the overview of all that had happened. Let's look at our second point. The second main idea that Stephen gave is this. Number two says, um, the, blending, the blessings of God are not limited to the land of Israel. Okay? The blessings of God are not limited to the land of Israel. Remember, they're stuck in the old covenant. They're adoring Moses. They love the land. They want to get more land. They like everything that has to do with Judaism. And here we're going to see that some of God's greatest favors were bestowed on his people outside of the land of Israel. In fact, they were, dis- they were dis- bestowed apart from the temple and while the Israelites were not even in the promised land. Stephen gives us four examples of this. Example number one, or A, Israel's patriarchs and leaders were blessed outside the land. This is part of Stephen's point. He wants to make sure they understand that Israel's patriarchs and the leaders, many of them, were blessed outside the land. Three quick examples of that first sub-point. Number one, Abraham was called by God while in Mesopotamia. We already read about that. Abraham was called... While he was in Mesopotamia, Abraham was born in Ur, which was a powerful city in southern Babylonia. Ur of the Chaldeans was a place in Mesopotamia. Abraham's father, his name was Terah, eventually led the family toward the land of Canaan, but decided to settle for a time in Haran. 
after Terah's death, the Lord called Abraham to go to the land that I will show you, which was the promised land in Canaan. Today, this is the land of Israel. So we see that Abraham, though, was originally blessed, chosen, appointed while he was in Ur of Chaldeans, while he was in Mesopotamia. He wasn't in Israel. He was outside of Israel, and yet God showed favor just simply by calling him, communicating to him, telling him to go to the land that I will show you. A second example, again, we're talking about Israel's patriarchs and leaders were blessed outside the land, Abraham. Second would be, again, Moses, or excuse me, Joseph is what, Moses is number three, but Joseph, number two, Joseph found favor from God while in Egypt. He did, he found favor from God while he was in Egypt. Acts chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, and this is after they sold him, right, into slavery, uh, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him to, into Egypt, but God was with him. So he's in Egypt, so Joseph is no longer in, in uh, Israel, he's in Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of his, all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who he made him a ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Again, this just shows the magnitude of God's favor shown to Joseph, not while in Israel, but while he was in Egypt. And then number three, Moses was commissioned by God in Midian. He was commissioned by God in Midian. Verse 29 and following says, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now he, when he was 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight and as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. So please note, again, it was while Moses was in Midian, out in the wilderness, that God appeared to him in the burning bush there at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Moses was commissioned by God while he was in Midian and to further substantiate God's blessings on Moses, Stephen brings to mind that God gave Moses two sons while he was there. And all of this is to say that Israel's patriarchs and leaders were blessed where? Outside of the land. Now the second example that Stephen gives to show that God's blessings were not limited to the land of Israel, in addition to the three patriarchs that we just looked at, two patriarchs and then Moses, would be B, the Old Testament law itself was given outside of the promised land. The Old Testament law itself was given outside of the promised land. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. So here we're just talking about the law itself was given to Moses while on Mount Sinai, which was located in the Arabian Peninsula. The Ten Commandments and the rest of God's word are to be treasured. But this treasure was not produced in the land of Israel, but in the wilderness. 
In fact, Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, never stepped foot into the promised land of Israel. You understand that Moses was never there. He was born in Egypt, lived in Egypt, went to Midian, went back to Egypt, came across the wilderness, went to the top of Mount Nebo, outside of the promised land, to see what God would give to his children. But he actually never stepped foot into the land of Israel. That's significant. Next blank says this, the tabernacle was built in the desert. The tabernacle was built in the desert. Acts chapter 7 again, what we're overviewing this morning, verses 44 and 45. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers, so it was until the days of David. So we're seeing that the tabernacle, also here called the tent of witness, was built in the wilderness The Hebrews brought it in with them when they came into the land of Israel. Then the last example of how the blessings of God are not limited to the land of Israel is D, even the temple, though in Jerusalem, was to reach all nations. The temple, though it was in Jerusalem, was meant to reach all nations. And we read about that in verse 49, where we read, heaven is my throne, And the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? This is a quote from Isaiah 66, verse 1. And part of the message of Isaiah is to show that God is so glorious. And it is so, he's so um, full and he's so focused on redemption that his focus is also to reach out to the Gentiles. That the Israelites were supposed to be a light unto the Gentiles. In fact, Isaiah 52.10 says, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And so at this point, again, the Jewish leaders are accusing Stephen of blaspheming against the temple, but Stephen is simply reminding them that the temple was not the place of God's permanent rest, and the temple was to be a light to all of the nations, even the Gentiles. Of course, Jesus had already taught about this. If you remember when Jesus cleansed the temple, and then we read in Mark eleven fifteen through 17, you remember what he said? They came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were, who were selling pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Right? The, the day that Jesus got angry, right? The kids always point, well, even Jesus got angry, Dad? Well, yeah, but he had a point. And the point that Jesus, in, in his righteous indignation, he said to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the Jews? You know the verse doesn't say that, right? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So the temple was to represent God's presence temporarily so that all the nations would see the light. It was always meant to be that way. So Jesus was upset, which is why he himself went outside of the land of Israel in the Decapolis and other places in order to make sure that people knew we are now transitioning away from an ethnic covenant of an Old Testament sort with God's ethnic people of Israel. And we're now moving into a new covenant, which has to focus that is not on your ethnicity, 
but it's rather on your heart, and it's on those who are going to be in Christ. And so he's teaching us that God is bigger than Jerusalem. God is bigger than Israel. God is the God of all nations. And granted, God chose Israel as his covenant people, but he did that for a purpose. And the purpose was for them to represent God's holiness, to represent God's love, and to represent God's glory among the nations. The problem was that the Jews had become too ingrown. The Jews had become too proud of their own heritage. The Jews had become prejudiced against other people who were not like them. And the gospel preached in the New Testament was a gospel that was to be making disciples where? In all nations. I mean, that's the theme of the book of Acts. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Have you forgotten already? It's just a few months ago, people. You will receive When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Stephen is just backing this up. He's saying, hey, you're saying that I've somehow defiled God's holy word. I haven't defiled it. You guys have just simply uh, misunderstood it. Stephen is demonstrating in his sermon that there was progress and change in God's program that there was the blessings of God that are shown not to be limited to Israel. And now let's look at number three. Let's look at Stephen's third idea that he emphasizes, this third chord that can clearly be seen through the fabric of his sermon. Go ahead and click on number three. It's some, some reason blocked out on my outline. Can you click the PowerPoint? We're getting there. Number three. You there? Whoop, we, we got guys sleeping in the back. Sorry about that. All right, there it is. Israel always evidenced a pattern of opposition to God. Israel always evidenced a pattern of opposition to God. These are the three main points, and this is really the main point, if you will, of Stephen's sermon. This point is the point he's trying to get out and really get to as he builds his case, builds his case, builds his case, and then look at verses 51 through 53, where Stephen then says to the Jewish audience, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He is saying to the authorities, You are just like your fathers. You are a stiff-necked people. You have rejected Jesus, and now you are resisting the Holy Spirit. And this theme is seen throughout the message, but here are some of the specifics. Your next blank, A there, says Abraham tarried in Haran. He tarried in Haran, verses 2 through 4. Now, we have read these verses before, but I'm just trying to remind you that there was a slight delay in Abraham getting from Mesopotamia to the promised land. Instead of going directly there, Abraham tarried in Haran until his father died, and then God moved him from there to the land of Israel. And while there is no clear disobedience that Abraham is accused of, there was still a little bit of a delay from what God initially said to Abraham and when he finally got to Israel. Another potential opposition to God would be B, Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. 
We know that again from verse 9. And here we see the jealousy of Joseph's brothers as they sold him into slavery. And yet this was still part of God's design. What man meant for evil, we said, Genesis 50, 20, God meant for good. And yet it still shows that there was great opposition by the patriarchs themselves toward God. They didn't like Joseph. The brothers knew that Joseph was the favored one. The brothers knew that Joseph had dreams and revelation from God. The brothers knew that Joseph was treasured by his father. Instead of somehow learning what God wanted to teach them through that, and of course we're not you know, affirming favoritism of a father to his son, but there was favor that God was going to place on Joseph, and the brothers just rejected it. And certainly they didn't respond correctly when they were going to kill him Then they ended up selling him into slavery and then lied about it to their dad when they said an animal had, you know, ripped up the coat of many colors. And so there is a opposition to what God was doing. The brothers were in opposition to God's plan, and yet they could not oppose God. You can't oppose God. Even in their sin and unbelief, uh, God still brought about his exact purpose. Another example of God's chosen people in opposition to God would be C, Moses. Again, we're looking at our same main threads here. Moses was rejected by the Israelites. He was rejected. When he was 40 years old, we talked about he came, came into his heart to visit his brothers. This is while he was there in Egypt, and he came to visit them, uh, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them, Acts 7.24, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now, little did Moses know that what was said there in verse 27, who made you a ruler and a judge over us would be repeated and continually brought up before him in the wilderness wanderings. And I just have to say here, and we'll look more at this in the coming weeks, that it is highly significant that both Joseph and Moses were not accepted until after their second appearances. The parallel with Christ could not have escaped Stephen's hearers. Now, a fourth example of Israel being in opposition to God would be D, Israel rejected true worship by turning to idols. They rejected true worship by turning to idols. Verse 39 through 43, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. This is when Moses was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights miraculously, and God was revealing to him the Ten Commandments on the top of Mount Sinai, and the Israelites get impatient, and they begin to oppose what God is doing, and they beg Aaron, verse 40, to make gods who will go before us, and they made a calf, verse 41, in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, 
As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So here we learn that Israel had no patience for God to work. Moses was gone again the 40 days and 40 nights, and they actually made this golden calf with Aaron's help and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. And so God turned them over, the text says. This means that he judiciously, uh, judicially abandoned the Israelites in their sin of idolatry. God turned them over to the worship of the host of heaven, which is a reference to Israel's worship of creation of the sun and of the moon and of the stars, which was the most blatant worship uh, of, of even the Jews of the apostolic age. They particularly abhorred this kind of worship. This idolatrous worship began in the wilderness and it lasted through the Babylonian captivity. And then we see how the Israelites were opposed to God even by missing the point of the temple. E there in your outline, the Jews missed the point of the temple, verses 48 through 50, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So God is again saying, you can't build a place for me where I ultimately dwell forever Yes, I choose to place my presence there for a time, but the people of Israel missed the point of the temple. The strong and clear assertion of Stephen was that the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. This statement implies that the Jews believed that the temple was God's permanent dwelling place on earth. This could even be, have been the Jews' counterpart, some commentators would say, to Mount Olympus, which was in notable Greek mythology. It was the home of the Greek gods, and so they came up with their own special um, mount. The temple was to be the place of worship and prayer, but it was never to be seen as God's permanent home. The temple was to represent God's presence, not his eternal dwelling. And the presence of God was to be seen in the flaming torch that walked alone between the pieces of the sacrifice made by Abraham while God was affirming that unilateral covenant. The presence of God was to be seen in the pillar of cloud by day and of cloud uh, and fire by night while leading the nation through the wilderness. The presence of God was to be seen in the temporary structure of the tabernacle and the presence of God was to be seen for a time hovering over the mercy seat in the temple there on the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem And then the presence of God is to be seen in the person of Christ. They stopped with the temple. The next installment, if you will, of God's divine presence on earth was himself in the flesh. And they were still there with the temple. They were not progressing with the further divine revelation of God. If you remember, after Jesus cleansed the temple that we read about in, in, in Mark uh, and, in, and also in John 2, the Jews responded by asking him for a sign. They wanted proof that Jesus had the messianic authority to remove the merchants from the temple. And Jesus did not give them a sign, but he did say, if you destroy this temple, that in three days he would raise it up. And the Jews thought he was talking about the physical temple there in Jerusalem, but according to John 2.21, Jesus was referring to his own body. This means that the Lord Jesus was identifying himself as the new 
and the true temple. The old sanctuary was to be superseded by a new temple. Even Jesus himself, in whom his people are being knit together as in a true sanctuary for God, 1 Peter 2. R.C. Sproul writes in his commentary of John, quote, Christ is the temple, and all men are commanded to come to him in order to worship and serve the one true God. And so this morning, what we've seen is Stephen has three main chords in the fabric of his sermon. These three main points in this sermon all fit together. Since there is progression in God's program, and since his blessing are not limited to the land of Israel or to the temple, the Jews had better be careful not to resist. That's Stephen's whole plea. Don't resist. Don't resist God. Don't resist what God is doing in the incarnation. Don't resist the, the, in, the inauguration of the new covenant. Don't resist the fact that God now wants to write his law on your heart. Don't resist. Stop staying stuck in the old covenant. This morning, dear friend, there are some here today maybe that you're resisting God. Somehow you are stuck in an old understanding. Maybe it was how you were raised. Maybe it was a certain time in your life where you just felt like God wasn't there for you. What I'm trying to say to you is that all of us, even as most of us here are Gentiles, have somehow opposed God. We've somehow not seen God's plan and his program in the way that we ought This morning, if that's you, there's good news for you. You don't have to resist him anymore. Even today, on a day where we've done a big study of an overview of an Old Testament uh, uh, text that Stephen used in a New Testament sermon, even today, you can repent. In fact, I'm calling you today, if you're here visiting our church or you're over at the Master's University, you could be a young boy, a young girl. You could have been in church your whole life. And what I'm trying to say to you is the same thing Stephen said to his audience is that we are guilty of the blood and the body of Christ. And we are stuck sometimes in our own understanding of who God is and what we want him to be. And what we've got to do this morning is just like, man, it's just so deep. It's just so rich. Let me study and let God declare himself to me through his word. And let me see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ And this very morning, as we close here in prayer after our last song, if you want to come to Christ, you want to repent of your sin and understand the gospel, we're going to have a few people by that back door. We would love to talk to you. Or if you're here this morning and you're just in a bad place, maybe you're struggling with something that's going on in your life or your marriage, uh, we want to be able to pray for you. We want to be able to minister to others. You can come as well to this back corner of the room as we close in prayer. This morning, we have an opportunity to learn a lot from Stephen, to see how the progress and change in God's and God's revelation still applies to us today with these timeless truths and can help us to be more evangelistic and help us to learn more about God's grace. And so if you're here this morning, we want to invite you into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look at an overview of the sermon that Stephen gave here in Acts 7. We, we look forward to the coming five or six weeks where we'll pick these sections apart one at a time with a closer look at Abraham and a closer look at Joseph and the patriarchs and a closer look at Moses, a closer look at even the tabernacle and the temple. We'll see how all of these people and all of these, these things, that the tabernacle and temple are to point us to Christ. Or we'll see how we sometimes get stuck ourselves and an older understanding that is devoid of the true interpretation of Scripture, which can only come through careful study 
a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, can only be produced in the heart of a true believer by the Holy Spirit that would cause us to want to long to to better understand so that we can better defend and and better live out our Christian faith and testimony. I pray, God, if there be anyone here today that is resisting the Holy Spirit, that is resisting that call to salvation, that you would pierce their heart today and that you would allow them to see the beauty of Christ, that you would allow them to see the love of God demonstrated in Christ's sacrifice that we could just say this morning that, hey, we're guilty of that. We're, we're guilty. Our sin drove those nails into his hands. And that this morning that you would grant repentance and that you would grant faith and that you would open eyes and remove the obstacles that would stand between that individual and our Lord. I pray for those of us who are believers today that you would just cause us to bask in the beauty of the, the sermon that, we, that we're looking at from Stephen, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that we would learn much so that we could live with greater confidence and greater dependence on you, that you would use this series in our lives over the coming weeks that we might grow and learn and that we might live it out all for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.